Good morning, all. Great to see you. I'm Greg Paris. We're so thrilled that you're here today at Union Chapel. Welcome. Beautiful sunshine out there. I hope you're having a good day. We are in the midst of Sabbath rest as this important sermon series. Thank you for all the good feedback that you have provided. Many of you have responded by saying that uh, you're making some adjustments to your life. And it's really nice just to give, to give people permission to actually adjust their lives so that they can practice more effectively the whole notion of Sabbath. So today I've chosen as our text from the scripture, Isaiah the prophet, chapter 56. Isaiah 56, I'm going to read just two verses, first two of the verses there in Isaiah 56. Trust will be a blessing to you. I know you're still... Uh, moving that offering. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we will project the words on the screen. Our custom at Union Chapel is to stand to hear God's word, so I invite you to do that as you are able. Hear the words of the prophet Isaiah. This is what the Lord says, maintain justice, do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. May God inspire us today through this important word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. As many of you know, Beth and I, my, my wife and I, have owned a lake home for many years, and it's a, it's a place for us to retreat. And it's been especially handy in the past several months as she's been able to convalesce there during her cancer treatment. And it also provides some measure of anonymity for us. You can imagine that uh, in Muncie, Delaware County, now it's not always easy to move around without uh, always running into people we know, and that's always uh, a great moment. Um, but sometimes you'll just like to have anonymity. And uh, another thing that's happened during the last several months with Beth's treatment is I have had to pick up a lot of the domestic chores. And so I've been uh, domesticated, as it were, well-trained. And one of, one of my chores has been to buy the groceries. So I've been going grocery shopping. And Greenwood is between where our lake home is and the hospital that we were associating with on the south side of Indianapolis. And so I was in the Kroger store in Greenwood a couple of months ago doing some grocery shopping. Never thought I'd ever say that out loud. <laughs> but there, there it is. I was in the Kroger getting some groceries in Greenwood. And I got up to the checkout counter, and there was a woman who had a full cart of groceries in front of me, and I assumed this was for her family. And she was wearing uh, a traditional Muslim head cover. She was Arab in descent, wearing hijab. And, and so I just a thought crossed my mind. So I reached in and got my credit card, and I walked up to her because I was next in line, and I put on my very soft demeanor and tried to be as careful as I could, kind of slouched down so I wouldn't be too tall. And, and I had my credit card in sight. And I smiled at this young woman and I said, uh, excuse me, but my name is Greg and God has blessed me in my life. In fact, I have a lot more than I actually need in my life. Would you mind if I bought your groceries for you today? And this kind of took her aback, and she had to pause, and I gave her a couple of moments to process, and she said, well, I, I guess it would be okay. And so I quickly swiped my card. And she was very grateful, very thankful, and she was thanking me as, as she was checking out. 
And I said, well, I want to say one more thing to you. I'm a follower of Jesus. And it's a great blessing to me to be able to be generous to you. So have a great day. And that was it. And off she went. On your outline, you'll see a few points that I want to make. The first one is this, that Sabbath and giving are two sides of the same coin. Sabbath and giving are connected. And it's no accident. You know, in many traditional churches, for example, they'll pass the offering and the offering plates, once the the offering's been received, they are brought forward again and set on the altar table right next to the communion elements. And that's not a coincidence because Sabbath and giving go together. They're like conjoined twins. I mean, you can't separate them. They, they, They track together. They're motivated by some of the same things. And so the idea of giving away Sabbath is a very important principle. The Hebrews began to practice Sabbath in the wilderness under, under Moses. And then as they traveled and traversed through that region of the world, wherever they were and whatever culture they happened to be um, exposed to and interacting with, they would actually influence that culture to consider the practice of Sabbath. So when you fast forward all the way up to the time of Jesus to, in the first century, we see that all of that region of the world were actually practicing the Sabbath. We have historical voices. Uh, the Greek writer Philo, the Roman statesman and philosopher Seneca all wrote about this. The Roman historian Josephus all wrote about this. Josephus actually said, and I quote, not any city of the Greeks, nor any of the barbarians, nor any nation whatsoever is found where the Sabbath is not observed. So the Hebrews were effective not only in practicing the seventh, the Sabbath day, the seventh day, Sabbath, but they were effective in giving it away to the cultures around them. And they all benefited from that. Then when we get to the New Testament, we find uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul and other gospel writers who remind us that it was very difficult to be a Christian in the first century and indeed the first number of centuries. And there was great persecution. There was great resistance. There was great uh, uh, animosity, bias, intolerance toward people who followed Jesus. I mean, the the monotheistic Jews would stone Christians to death and the polytheistic Greco-Roman world, pagan world, they would mistreat. I mean, Nero, kind of the height of this, the Roman emperor who would butcher Christians and burn them alive, you know, to to, uh, enlighten his gardens at night. I I mean, what a wreck. And they were killing them in the Colosseum and feeding them to lions and so forth. And so all of this bias, all of this persecution against Christians, but all of these cultures and all of these peoples that hated Christians in the first few centuries had to admit, and they begrudgingly gave this compliment to Christians, and they all said, and this is all important history, they all begrudgingly said, you've got to give them one thing, those Christians are generous. They're generous, willing to give Give of who they were and give of what they had. It's, it's a very interesting thing. Now, let me just remind you that giving money to help another person makes no sense. I mean, it's not intuitive, is it? This is to give someone something for nothing. And the same thing is true with Sabbath because Sabbath is kind of counterintuitive as well. It doesn't really follow. You know, okay, it's day seven and I feel fine. I don't sense the need to rest. Why would I need to stop and rest? which is the definition of Sabbath. Why should I do that? So it is counterintuitive. 
But for a follower of Jesus, there is no separating the Sabbath and giving. They're, they're, they're together. And so when you give away the Sabbath, you not only act in obedience, but you act in generosity. So it's good to take the Sabbath, and it's godly to give away the Sabbath. So you see these two things closely connected. Now, let me just give you an illustration of why I think we need to think about and talk about Sabbath and giving a bit, because one of the unfortunate areas of Christian experience where Christians don't seem to get the connection here is in the context of how generous Christians tend to be with people who serve Christians, for example, in restaurants. This is an example. If you ask uh, a dozen servers from restaurants in Muncie, Indiana, and you just had them independently here, and they did, we didn't let them collaborate with each other, and we asked the question, what is, what, what is your worst day of the week in your business? I know what they would say. They would say, right after church on Sunday is the worst time to work in restaurants in, in, in Muncie. Now, listen, when I said it, you go, that's probably right. It's not, it's not right, but it is true. That's probably true. Now, does, does, that, does that offer some disconnect for anyone here besides me? A disconnect between learning about the Sabbath and how it's connected to being generous and giving and then going to a restaurant and stiffing a waiter? Maybe those two should be in alignment. You've just, you've just heard a very nicely prepared and delivered sermon on Sabbath and giving, and you resonate with it, and you realize those are connected, and they, they are similar values, and they all have the same motive in heart. And so wouldn't the right response, rather than leaving Union Chapel and going down to the Port of Arda and stiffing one of our Latino friends down there with the tip, maybe... If we all went down there and gave a generous tip, the, our f good friends down at the PV might think, what's going on at that church down there? This hasn't worked in any service so far, so don't feel bad that you're not really enthusiastic about what I'm saying. I have to fill the time with something, so we'll talk about this for just a moment longer. You know, the, the old adage was 10%. Uh, the old standard, 15% tip, maybe 20% stretching it up there. Why don't we start a new, why don't we start a new trend? Why don't we think 50%? 50% to 100% tip. Seven, eight, I'm, I'm saying maybe 10. 10 people are. What's that? Those were the servers. probably right. It's probably right. <laughs> Let me just say it this way. If you can't afford a generous tip, you can't afford to go out to eat. Well, it takes me three months just to save up so that my whole family can go out to a nice restaurant. Well, okay, wait another month. The fourth month is save up for the tip. And let's be generous. Let's be generous. Because Sabbath and giving go together. <laughs> I, I've appealed to the owners down at PV. I said, listen, as many people who come from our church on Sunday down to this restaurant, you ought to give me a free meal every time I come in here. And they just don't see it that way. I'm not sure why. It makes perfect sense to me. Well, let's move off of that subject. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Now we'll take the pressure off of that. 
Look at your notes. Now, here's the second thing I want to mention, and that is Sabbath and hospitality. Sabbath and hospitality. We've considered how Sabbath and giving are linked. Now take the next step. Giving and Sabbath are actually the main ingredients to hospitality. My wife, Beth, has many fine qualities, and one of her really strong qualities is she has a natural capacity for hospitality. She also has the spiritual gift of hospitality. And so that in combination makes it really strong. Now notice I didn't say she has the ability to entertain others because entertaining is about the host. But hospitality is about the guest. It's a big difference. And so she's learned how to exercise this wonderful gift. And hospitality at its core, look what it allows us to do. It allows us to have company and enjoy company with people who may be different than us. We have an entire political and social culture right now in the United States that is, that is caustic. And the reason it's caustic is because we have so many people who, who make a living out of, out of finding all of our differences and exploiting those differences and getting people at odds at one another because we're different in some way. I mean, what's your political party? What's your race? What's your creed? What's your social circle? And all of these issues come up, and, and so we have people who spend all of their time with some kind of victim and poverty mentality saying, look, what, look what, how bad people are and look how little I have compared to someone else. And so we just get at odds with one another because we, we reach for the lowest possible common denominator among ourselves, which is our differences. And it's not good. It's not healthy, and it's not, and it's not holy. So here's what hospitality does. Hospitality comes to the forefront and says it's an opportunity to put aside our differences. In fact, hospitality demands that we find common ground so that we can actually not only associate but actually enjoy the company of people who are different than we are. Think different, look different, act different. And hospitality allows for that. It's a wonderful gift. Now, hospitality can be exercised with people who are different than you, but it doesn't have to be with people who are different. You can exercise it with friends. You can exercise it with family. For example, there are matriarchs in our church and in our community, grandmas who insist that everybody come to her house every Sunday afternoon after church for dinner. And this is what you do. And grandma expects you to be there as a family every week, and this is going to be practiced until Jesus comes. And you can't get out of it. And for some of you, you know, it kind of wears thin. But think about the value that it actually provides. It provides for hospitality and it provides for an opportunity to be intimate with people that you love. Some of you maybe have a family tradition of sitting down for a meal. Some of you maybe do this once a day. That would be remarkable. Maybe once a week. But you, you actually practice it. And I want to encourage you to keep practicing that. Because it is an aspect of Sabbath. Maybe this is a practice that you've had in your family in the past, but circumstances have made it more difficult. Maybe you want to reinstitute the habit of sitting down together. Let me just remind you that, 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 that the Hebrews in our world, the Jews in our world, they practice Sabbath every week. And the way that Sabbath begins for them is at the end of the work week on Friday night when they gather for a meal. And by very definition of gathering for a long extended meal after the work week, this is an opportunity to experience intimacy and fellowship with people. It's a part of Sabbath. So I just want to encourage you with that. Um, one of my favorite TV programs of all time is The Andy Griffith Show. It's st it still runs 24-7 on some channel 
somewhere in the world. It's just very popular. I especially, Beth and I have appreciated so much the values that were taught through that TV series, you know, living in Mayberry. And the characters there are so interesting and funny and charming. And my favorite episode of, of all the episodes, and I have seen them all. In fact, not only have I seen them all, I have, when the boys, our boys were growing up, I would tape Andy Griffith programs, and then in the evenings when people were watching some other thing, I would let the boys watch Andy Griffith because I wanted them to get those values as well. And to this day, our adult sons, if you set them in front of a of TV with Andy playing, they can, quote, verbatim the next lines of the dialogue and whatever. I mean, literally, it's a little scary. They They know everything about it. And it's just fascinating that they would have picked up on all of that. My favorite episode of all the episodes, and I've seen them all many times, is an episode called Man in a Hurry. And it's Mayberry on Sunday. It's Mayberry on the Sabbath day. And the opening, the opening scene of this episode has, has Andy and Aunt Bee and Opie and Barney Fife all coming out of church, a little white frame church, coming out of church and chatting with the pastor on the, on the steps of the church. That's the opening scene, and it's funny, and, and it's charming, and it's Sabbath day. And at the same time this is happening, there's a very, very important businessman who's on his way. He's just passing by Mayberry in his very nice, very exclusive car, very expensive automobile. He's got a nice suit on. And he is a man on a mission. He has people to see and places to go. And he's got to get through Mayberry and onto the bigger town for, for a big business meeting on Monday morning. And so he is in a hurry. Now what happens to him is his car breaks down. His fuel line gets clogged, as it turns out. And he breaks down just outside of Mayberry. And so he comes walking into Mayberry and he is, and he is a man determined to get someone to fix his car so he can keep going. But he comes in direct conflict with the Sabbath culture of Maber and his own pace and his own agenda. And every scene of, the, of this episode has this guy banging heads with someone in Mayberry who's trying to practice the Sabbath while he's trying to get people to work. The whole thing changes and flips in this one scene. And it's right after Aunt B has exercised her gift of hospitality She's provided this beautiful meal. You don't see them eating, but you imagine it was delightful. And Andy and Barney Fife are sitting on the front porch of Andy's house, and they're relaxing after lunch on Sabbath. And they've invited Mr. Tucker, this businessman, to lunch, being hospitable. And now you see Mr. Tucker come out on the front porch with them. And this is when Mr. Tucker finally comes to rest. I want you to see it. Watch it. Childhood as a little brown. 
Did you feel it? Welcome to Sabbath. Welcome to Sabbath in Mayberry. Yeah, there it is. Stop and rest. Reflect on God's goodness to you. Well, let me just add one more point. We'll be done this morning. Number three on your outline, Sabbath in the local church. In the local church. Something that you may not be aware of in our culture in America right now is that young people are leaving the church in big numbers. It's a very sobering. It should alert all of us and concern us very much. Something like 70% of young people, even young people who have been raised in the church, 70% of these young people, these millennials in our culture today, are leaving the church during their college years at that age group, that level. And there are various explanations being given by people, and there have been books written about this. I've read a number of these books. Some say it's because of the music or movies or modern technology or short attention spans. Uh, churches are trying to adapt by doing all kinds of interesting and perhaps even goofy things, trying to attract and keep millennials. But this exodus continues. We don't seem to be slowing it down yet. And so this is a great challenge for the church to reach the next generation. Let me just remind you that as the people of faith, we are called to two things with regard to faith. One is we should keep the faith all the way to the end of our lives. The Apostle Paul said it best to, to the young evangelist Timothy when he said, look, I ran the race, I finished the course, I kept the faith. That's a big deal, getting to the end of your life and keeping the faith, still have my faith. Because sometimes life will knock the faith right out of you. So when you keep the faith, that's a great accomplishment. There's another thing that we're responsible to with regard to faith, and that is not only to keep the faith, but to pass on the faith to the next generation. And so here we are at Union Chapel. We have an opportunity to do that. And it's always been part of my sense of call, part of the mission that Beth and I sense as, as, as people and as leaders to provide opportunities and to set the stage for and create a culture sensitive and, and, and alert to each unique generation. And as new generations emerge, how are we able to effectively communicate this wonderful, timeless message of hope found in Jesus Christ to that generation. And so we do that. And that's why at Union Chapel, we're always moving forward. We don't go back. We always lean forward. We don't go back. We look forward. We don't go back. There's a, there's a default right now in the mainline denominational historical churches in the United States. 
And the default setting, the fallback setting for these historic churches like Methodist and Lutheran and Presbyterian and Christian denominations, the default setting is to get older and smaller. So across America, we see these churches getting older, demographically older and smaller. Now, you don't have to be very smart to predict the future, do you? When the default setting in local church is older and smaller. In fact, you don't have to have any sense at all to predict the future 50 years from now. There won't be any churches in the United States. And so that should sober every one of us. It should shake us a bit. And it's not only the reason why we keep moving forward and trying to be sensitive to the needs and the tastes and the, and the culture of emerging generations, but it's also because the reason that we are interested in planting new churches, because new churches are the best opportunity we have to reach new generations. And so that's why we're in the business of planting churches. We want to do visionary things. I have discovered that I have a, a, an unusual gift, a capacity of God. This is almost like a spiritual gift. And the gift that I have is the ability to offend old people. <laughs> it just com it comes so natural to me. I don't even realize when I'm doing it. And people get upset, very upset, very, very upset with me for all kinds of reasons. I don't even realize that it's happening. When I was 25 years old, I, I offended old people all the time. It, there was nothing I did that was acceptable to old people when I was 25 years old. And, and I thought, well, when I get a little bit older, then at least I won't be ticking off all the old people because then I will be old. But now that I'm old, I've discovered that I still tick off old people. Even people who are younger, chronologically younger than me right now, get angry with me because I act like I'm too, that I'm more interested in young people than I am old people. And, I, and so here I'm going to do it again. I am more interested in young people than I am old people. And the reason, well, that's not right. That's not fair. It's right, and it's fair, and it's good, and it's godly. Because listen to me, old people don't come to faith very easily. Once you get to 50, 60 years old, you know the chances of you coming to Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, is like one in a million. Literally. So what are there? How many 60-year-old people in Delaware County who don't know Jesus need to come to Jesus? Well, there's not even close to a million people. I might reach one 60-year-old if that's all I emphasize. So I'm more interested in people that will actually respond to the gospel. So we go forward. We don't go back. We go forward. We don't go back. We go forward. So it's not... We're not going to go back to the way it was. We're not going to go back to the way we like it. We're not going to go back and sing those songs. We're not going to go back and dress that way. We're not going to go back that way and act that way. We don't go back. We go forward. There, I did it again. I could feel it. I was, I was offending people right there. That's, that's what happens. And so we've got an entire generation of young people who are walking away from a meaningful connection with the hope of the world, which is the expression of the local church, and the dissemination of the gospel of hope found in Jesus Christ. Young people walking away from that. Listen, we can't let that happen. And so we've got to do something about that. And while this exodus continues, people are trying to figure out why it's happening. And I want to speculate a bit about that. And one of the reasons I want to put this on the screen right now, one reason I think it's happening is that most children do exactly what they are taught. And they see their parents worshiping many lesser gods, 
lesser gods of the culture, little bitty tiny gods, little bitty false gods, counterfeit gods, not the one true God, but lesser gods, gods of the culture. When our boys were growing up, Beth and I raised two sons, and we realized even then that we had to work hard in order to keep the Sabbath day and keep it holy in our family because there was growing pressure on young people then and it's even more intense today. Parents, I feel your pain. I feel this pressure to conform to these new social norms, to conform to these these new cultural norms, to conform to this athletic culture, this this youth culture of athletics. And when we were raising our boys, we had to work hard at that. And it was tough because you had to swim against the current. You had to go against, against the stream. And, and you had to say no. You had to make adjustments to things. So when coaches would call our boys and say, no, we want you to join our AAU basketball team or AAU baseball team or something like that. And we'd say, well, now, what, what are the implications of playing on this team? Well, you know, you play on the weekends. That's when you play. Especially during the school year, you got to play games on the weekend, so you got to travel. So you'll be in Ohio one weekend, and you'll be uh, in Kentucky the next weekend, and blah, blah, blah. And so we had to say no. No to that. No to that. All the voices in the culture says, well, you have to participate to stay competitive. If you don't participate, your kids won't be competitive when they get older, and they won't make the teams, and they won't be be happy, and they'll they'll be outcasts. You've got to do this to be competitive. I had one of my high school classmates, teammates, at a high school reunion a few years ago, came up to me and he was so proud to tell me this. He said, my 12-year-old son last year played in 104 basketball games. 12 years old, 104 games. I'm thinking, LeBron James didn't play 104 games. And I said, what is the matter with you? Do you really think that's helping your 12-year-old to play 104 games? Let me just say this out loud. That's not helping anybody. That's, that doesn't help. And then there was, there was peer pressure, you know, so our boys would come to us and they said, well, look, all my friends are doing it. Why can't I do it? And the answer was because it violates an important value, the value of the Sabbath. The value of worship, corporate worship adds value. It, it, it ennobles people's lives. You may not... Th- think much of what you're hearing this morning, but your life is better for being here today than it would be if you weren't here. Because you have been, you are in the presence of God. You're in the presence of God's people. You have heard the word of God read to you this morning. Your life is better for having been here. Your life is more noble, more honorable, more fruitful as a result of being here. It matters when you place values in the right things. It matters when you honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And we have this, we have this culture. And when some of the parents, some of my peers back in the day, one, one of these guys heard about what our decision, where you, my boys aren't going to play along, he got right in my face, looked me right in the eye, and this is what he said, and I quote, just because your kids aren't participating isn't going to stop it. This is what everybody does now. And so I leaned just a little bit closer and I looked him in the eyes and I said, well, just because everyone else is going to hell doesn't mean I have to go. I'm not going and neither is my family. I took this big, I took this big chance 
20 years ago. It's a big chance because our boys, you know, were that age. And I took this big flying leap. And my big leap was this, that I believe that if I did the right thing, just like Isaiah commanded us to do from our text today, do what's right and do what's just and do what's honorable before God, that God would do something on our behalf. And I took this big chance, and I decided that, that I, was going, I was going to bet that if our boys didn't get caught up in all the lesser gods and chase all the lesser gods of culture, that 20 years from then, if we, if we held up the right values now, that 20 years from now, it would pay off. And I'm just here as a witness. I'm a voice. Maybe I'm an exception to the rule. I don't know. But I'm just telling you, it all worked out. It all worked out really well for our boys in every way. Socially, academically, athletically, I don't think they missed out on anything by honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy. You see, uh, the third commandment, the one just before, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, says that God will not tolerate us if we worship idols, that we serve these lesser gods, that God won't, won't go for that. In fact, there's a caveat there that says, if you're bad at parenting and you don't honor these values, then there will be a curse on up to four generations of your children. But he said, if you honor the Lord in this way, there will be the blessing of God and the favor of God that comes after you and your children for a thousand generations. And that's the promise in it. And I've just let you know that I'm one of the witnesses, I'm one of the stories, I'm one of the testimonies that can tell you that God has honored that promise for me. No group in society, in my opinion, labors more than parents in our culture today who try to, try to raise their children to serve multiple gods. Oh, yeah, my children, we go to church once in a while, and we, we, we love Jesus, and, you know, we try to learn about Jesus, but we also serve all these other gods that are available in our culture. And I just want to submit to you that there is no more difficult job in the world than trying to chase all of these gods. And you know that it's true, just like I do, that these lesser gods, these false gods, these, these counterfeit gods will demand more and more of you and deliver less and less. They promise a lot, but they deliver very little. And they demand everything from you. You have to do this. You have to pay this amount. You have to travel. You have to belong. You have to social. You, you have to do it. If the soccer game is at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning, you've got to take your kid to soccer. Or somehow you're going to lose, lose something. Really? Seriously? Come on now. You can argue that parenting is the most difficult job in the world. You can argue it's the most important job in the world. Here's my push to you, and here's my recommendation to you, because this has been my practice, and this, is, this has worked for us. And this is what I recommend, that you invite the Lord of the Sabbath and his day, the Sabbath day, into your children's lives and allow the Lord to do some of the heavy lifting that is today's parenting. It's hard work. And it becomes impossible work if you're chasing your tail every time the world and the culture says jump and you're jumping in violation of God's best plan. Joshua chapter 24 verse 15 says, 
As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You've heard that. Joshua stood before the nation and he said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And the whole nation went, yeah, we're with you. It's great leadership. But listen, you can put Joshua 24, 15 and emblazon it on a plaque and hang it, over your, hang it over your mantle at home. But if our kids see us go to church for an hour on Sunday and then spend the entire week worshiping other gods, what message do you think they're going to internalize? You know that this statement is true, but let me just say it just to drive home the point. I'll put it on the screen. Children learn more from what their parents do than from what we say. How well are we in our houses serving the Lord when we break the fourth commandment week in and week out? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Apostle Paul comes along later in the New Testament and he reminds us about the body of Christ and he says, look, we're all part of the body. The hand can't say to the foot, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a foot. He said all the parts are important and, they, and the value then is added when we're connected, rightly related. You can take a single cell, a single cell of a human being and you can keep it alive under certain circumstances. But let me tell you what a single cell can't do. It can't grow. It can't reach its potential when it's by itself. That's why being connected, that's why being part of the local church is such a vitally important value in the life of a person who follows Jesus. And why association with the local church is a primary way to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So good on you for being here today. Good on you. You're exercising a godly value that, that God has promised will produce blessing and favor in your life and your children's lives for a thousand generations. Let me ask you, is that investment worth it? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. So let me just conclude by saying this. If you're going to step into Sabbath, it usually means a requirement to step out of something else. If you're going to step into Sabbath probably have to step out of other things. And so the question is, are you willing to make the adjustments? Because that's what it takes. We've mentioned some businesses that close their doors on Sunday. We've mentioned Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby. I found out about another one, their B&H Photo in New York City. They have a $70,000 retail store right in the heart of the business district in New York City, B&H Photo. And they also have an online um, shopping a site that is incredibly lucrative and they close down their internet site for 24 hours every week on Sabbath. So here are, these, here are these businesses. In shutting their doors, they're declaring their faith. They're not, they're not uh, those who equivocate about their faith. They see their devotion to God and honoring the Sabbath as the primary motive for their behaviors. They say that something is more important than profit. They say that the customer is not always right. That one day a week, they say, God is my focus, that God is their source, and they rely on him, trust him with the rest. Eugene Peterson is a name that many of you know. He is the author of the Bible paraphrase called The Message. Many of you have copies of that. It's been a great inspiration to millions of people. And this is what Eugene Peterson said about the Sabbath. We're, we're ending now. This plane is right at touchdown. Look at what Eugene Peterson said. Sabbath 
is a time to transition from human doings to human beings. It's good, isn't it? Now, our time of reflection, we do this at the end of each of these messages. I want to just look at Psalm 46, verse 10. And what we're going to do is we're going to read it together. Only each line of that verse, we're going to omit one of the, the, last, the, the last word in the verse all the way to the end. And we're going to do it together. So are you ready? We're going to read it together. So read with me. Ready? Here we go. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am Be still and know that I. Be still and know that. Be still and know. Be still and. Be still. Be. Now would you stand with us as we sing?